it just seems right that we would start the Acts of the Apostles. Amen? Amen. And so um, that's what we're going to do. So you should be turning to Acts chapter 1. And I'm wondering that as you do that, I'm wondering what you think. I'm wondering what you think the church actually is. Though we're in relationship in the church and relationships are so important to us, uh, the church is not, strictly speaking, a social club. Though uh, we are engaged in various activities, uh, such as helping to feed the poor and standing up for the oppressed in our city, the church is not strictly a social justice agency. Uh, Though we worship, though we pray, though we have rites and rituals like many organizations, it is not strictly a religious institution. So if it's not a social club, and it's not a social justice agency, and it's not primarily a religious institution, then what is the church? It's an important question, and I would, I would gauge the importance of the question by the fact that you're here today, that you thought it was important enough to come today to be part of the church. So let's turn to Acts 1, to the primary source material for understanding the church. The Acts of the Apostles marks the the history of the founding of the church of Jesus Christ. It documents the spread of the church in that first century. It talks about issues that the church faced and confronts those issues head on. If our church is having an issue, our church has had a few issues. Every church has issues. The very first church had issues. And Acts documents that. It talks about the pressure that it was under in that society. This church is under pressure from the society that we live in. That church was under pressure from the society that it was in. The book of Acts documents its successes. We've had success. It documents its failures. We've had failures. In the book of Acts, we see incredible sacrifice on the part of those who started it. And throughout the book, we find Holy Spirit conviction to live this out and to be the church. And in the first section that we're going to look at today, the first 11 verses, Jesus compels us as the church of the 21st century, compels us to mission. And introduces the first major theme of the book when he says this in verse 8. You will be my witnesses. And of all the things that the church is, this is the first and most basic. That a group of people would gather together to witness to Jesus Christ in this world. And if we're going to fulfill the mission and be witnesses of Jesus Christ to the world, then we have to give attention to this book. Now let's talk a little bit about the book of Acts, and that's kind of the intro to the series that launches us into the first message, but some basics about the book itself as we start out. Uh, First of all, we're going to throw this stuff up on the screen. Uh, The author is Luke. He is a Greek man. He is a a physician, a medical doctor. 
and a traveling companion of Paul on uh, some of his missionary journeys. He's mentioned in at least three of the letters of Paul and in the book of uh, Acts later on, much later on, like, like years from now for us, we're going to get to sections where Luke starts talking in the we. He starts using the pronoun we because he's with Paul on the journeys that we're going to be reading about. So that's the author, the recipients. Uh, first of all, was this man named Theophilus. And, um, but the recipient is the global church. And there's some thought, some speculation about a Theophilus that he was either a wealthy benefactor or a publisher of some kind that was helping Luke get his gospel and the book of Acts out to the wider public. It was written uh, around AD 64, about 30 years post-resurrection. The purpose of the book is to provide certainty with an orderly account of the continuing work of Christ. And if you read the first four verses of Luke's gospel, uh, together with um, the first few verses of, of, of the book of Acts, you get the whole purpose for why these two books were written. The genre or type of literature is history. It's the history of the spread of the gospel and the establishing of the church worldwide by the work the acts by the works or the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and other believers. And as I said, and I've alluded to a few times here already, it's a sequel or volume two uh, together with the gospel of Luke. The content of the book, we're going to read about various episodes. This, this thing happened and this thing happened. Lots of episodes, uh, historical narrative episodes that happen throughout uh, the book. There are speeches or sermons that we see. Uh, there are summaries. We're going to see one of the first and, um, and most complete summary of the, all of this happened and this episode happened. And then here's kind of like a summary of all of that. We're going to see that at the end of chapter two and get to that um, uh, before uh, the fall is out. And um, we also see travel narratives. And uh, we were headed to this city and this is what happened along the way. The themes that we find in the book, and this is certainly not an, an exhaustive list, but speaks of the kingdom or the gospel. It speaks of witness, as we're going to talk about today. It talks of mission. It talks about the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the entire book. You see the Holy Spirit working. It talks, of course, about the church and lays down some very basic understandings of the church. And it talks about inclusivity, which was a huge battleground point in the first century. Who's included in the church? And the answer is everyone. Men and women, young and old, all ethnicities, all language groups, everyone was to be included in the uh, church of Jesus Christ. The main characters in the book, of course, are the apostles, especially uh, Peter in the first part and Paul after chapter 13 or after chapter 12, 13 through to the end. The church is a main character, the Holy Spirit, of course, throughout. And um, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? It's all about the message of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so that gives you kind of a little snapshot of what the book is all about. And if you want to track this down even further, and I know many of you do, you want to know as much as you can about all of this. One of the most amazing resources that's being produced right now in the Bible is being done by uh, the Bible Project. And uh, you can go hbc.info. We have the links there for you in the sermon notes. And you can uh, watch two summaries. They're two eight-minute videos, summaries of the book of Acts. If you watch these, you're going to have a great picture of what the entire book is about as we uh, enter into studying it. Sound good? Everybody with me? Who wants to study the book of Acts? All right. All right. Let's go. Acts chapter 1, 1 to 11. I'll read this and then uh, we'll get after this first message. I think this message is long. Uh, Acts 1, 1 to 11. 
In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. That's awesome, right? All right. So here's the thing we're going after. If we're to fulfill the mission and be witnesses of Jesus Christ to the world, we must, five imperatives that we're going to look at here, five things that we must be doing. And you're going to be asking every step of the way here. You're going to be, am I doing this? Lots of broad application to the entire church. But listen, the church is only going to be as strong as every individual saying, am I doing this? Are these imperatives in play in my life? So here's the first one. First, believe the proofs. I mean, Christianity, the church, is, is founded on a radical proposition, a proposition that no other religion in the world would dare believe or say. That God became man, took on human flesh, died for the sins of humanity, and was resurrected visibly and bodily from the grave. That's the proposition that this church uh, is based on. Our whole reason for being is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about being witnesses, that's what we're being asked to witness to. Acts is about, listen, really, Acts is about the simplicity of the gospel. The thing about the book of Acts is that there's no deep theology in the book of Acts. It's not intended necessarily as a teaching book, the way Romans is. Romans is like deep in the weeds theology, trying to understand the depths of salvation in Jesus Christ. Acts is much more about the simplicity of the gospel message and and, and how it can transform lives. And so it's going to explain many things to us. It's going to illustrate much of our theology but it's really just about the simplicity of the gospel over and over and over again. There may be, in fact, as we look at this, there may be social aspects to the things that we see. That people are indeed in relationship, but every single one of those relationships is rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There are social justice implications to the things that we're going to see in the book of Acts. But every one of the social justice implications is based on the fact that Jesus had a heart for those who were on the margins, for those who were vulnerable, and that he was raised from the dead for them. 
There may, in fact, be religious implications that there are rites and rituals that we must perform as the church. But every single one of those rites and rituals is based on the fact that the tomb is empty. Otherwise, if it's not based on that, then it's the rites and rituals that are empty. And without any point or meaning in our lives. Everything in the book of Acts is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the simplicity of the gospel. And and look how Luke starts with this. He puts it right up front in in verse 1. In the first book, what was the first book again? Gospel of Luke, first book. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Notice everything Jesus began to do, but he's going to continue that work. It's not over. The gospel's not the period at the end of the sentence. He's going to continue to do and teach some things. Everything he'd already done and taught, he's going to carry that on and he's going to do it, or he did it, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, until the ascension. He did it right up until that moment. And then he had given commands through the Holy Spirit and he had given those commands to the apostles. The text tells us he gave it to the apostles. Listen, English is a rip-off language. Did you know this? There's almost nothing in English that's actually native English. We just rip off words from all the other languages. Did you know that? Apostle is not an English word. It's actually a, John Chorus, what kind of word is it? It's a Greek word, right? Good Greek guy over there. So listen, it's, it's a Greek word. And we just lifted it out of Greek and we put it into English. And so we have this word apostle. And when we think apostle, we just think of the twelve. That's it. We just think about the 12 apostles. In fact, if you look at a, 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 Latin, a Latin version of the New Testament, the word there is actually the derivative of the Latin word missio, from which we get the English word mission or missionary. And so you have this, this one word means apostle in Greek, transla- transliterated into English, missionary, also not an English word, Latin word brought into English, ripped off from the Latins, just take it, use it for ourselves. So now we have these two words, but, but you're sitting here saying, just talk to me in plain English. What does the word mean? What does apostle mean? What does missionary mean? What does it actually mean in plain English? How many people love plain English? Just say it. <laughs> I love plain English. Sent one. Sent one. Well, we'll see, now all of a sudden, if it's a, if it's a sent one, I can't just hide behind the fact that it was 12 apostles that were called to do this, or it was some professional missionary that was called to do this, because I too might in fact be, what's the word? A sent one. I might be a sent one. In fact, listen to this, uh, Eckhart J. Schnabel, that's a heck of a name, um, <laughs> You're going you're gonna to hear his name more than once because I'm using his commentary. Um, so the term, this is what he wrote, Mr. Schnabel. <laughs> the term missionary is understood as describing the activity of mission, defined as the activity of individuals who distinguish themselves from the society in which they live, both in terms of religious convictions and social behavior. So far, that just sounds like us, doesn't it? Right? We distinguish ourselves from the society around us in terms of religious convictions and social behavior. They are convinced of the truth of their belief and actively work to win other people for their convictions and for their way of life sent by God and the risen Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. 
Okay, but if, that is, if that's true when you define it that way, then it isn't just about the 12 apostles. It isn't just about missionaries who are called to foreign fields. It isn't just about the paid staff who happen to be pastors and directors of ministries. It isn't about professional evangelists who go about. No special status. This is just about you and I being sent ones. So everything that comes next, everything after Acts 1-1, everything is about you and me. It's about this church right here. So, so here's what we get. He presented Jesus. So Jesus began. Jesus began it. And now we're going to carry it on. And for the proof that he's talking about, look at verse 3 now. This is all going to be based on proofs. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by, by many proofs appearing to them. If you want to prove that you're alive, the best way to prove that you're alive is to show up. Correct? Well, I heard that he died. I have this confusion sometimes because I can't, I'm getting old enough now that I can't remember. Sometimes I see somebody's name and I'll go, oh, I th- thought they died. Have you ever had that? I thought they already died and they weren't dead, you know? And the reason why you know they're not dead is because they're like standing in front of you. So the best way, <laughs> like the, that's happened to me. So the best way to prove, it's so embarrassing, right? The best way to prove that you're alive is to show up. So Jesus showed up. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. The proof was he showed up appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He spent six weeks post-resurrection. He spent six weeks showing up, talking to various believers and teaching them more about the kingdom of God to prepare them for this mission. Some of that was recorded back in Luke chapter 24 and we read and studied that material. And every single appearance was a proof. And Paul talked about this too later on. First Corinthians chapter 15, he writes this. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then Paul throws this in, even though this last line doesn't fit within the 40 days of Jesus' appearances. This is kind of like a special little appearance, but Paul really wanted to feel included. You know, I, I saw him too. I saw him too. You know, so, so he throws, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Uh, so hundreds of people saw him alive and were so convinced. They were so convinced. You say, how do we know? How do we know that they saw Jesus alive? They were willing to die for it. You see, you're not, you're not willing to die for something. You're not willing to sacrifice for something. You're not willing to leave your family and leave your home and go to hostile territories and be arrested and be beaten and, and be under the threat. of. You're not willing to do that unless you've actually seen him alive. Unless he's actually transformed your life and these truths have penetrated your heart, mind, and soul. And you say, well, okay, but I haven't seen him. Not a single person in this room has seen the resurrected Christ. And, and you know, we have this great little story in, in, in John chapter 21, John chapter 20, I'm sorry. And, and Thomas was the last of the apostles to actually see Jesus. And he had all these questions and all these doubts. And he was so skeptical. He was like, he was saying to the other disciples, all of whom were saying, we've seen Jesus. 
And he's saying, yeah, no, I'm not going to believe unless I see him, unless I put my fingers into his wounds, unless he's right here in front of me. There's no way I'm believing. And Jesus, so patient and gracious and kind toward him, showed up and had a one-on-one face-to-face with Thomas. And at the end of it, Thomas, so convinced, says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, John 20, he says, you've believed because you've seen, but then anticipating anticipating what we would have to do. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's us. You see, we believe, we believe because we have the testimony of the witnesses. We, we, we're witnesses. We have the testimony of the eyewitnesses. We believe Because we exercise faith and the Holy Spirit moved in our lives to cleanse us of our sins and to save us from a a godless eternity. And so we have the testimony inside of us of the new life. We've been given that. And so we have within ourselves our own testimony of sins forgiven. And so we have an irrefutable proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He saved me. It's irrefutable because no one can argue the point of what Christ has done for you. And so that's what we have to put in front of people. If we're to fulfill the mission and be witnesses of Jesus Christ to the world, we have to embrace these truths, these proofs and believe them. Here's the second imperative, trust the promises. Trust the promises. And you and I will engage in this mission because of the assurances that we've been given that we're not doing this on our own, that God has, has given us various promises about this. And in and, and verses 4 and 5, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for, notice the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Remember I taught you this? Remember, we were talking about baptism, and and remember, we were reflecting on John's baptism. John baptized with water. That's an important baptism. It was good that you did that. We're still going to carry on with the whole water baptism thing. That's so important. But it wasn't just that. There was another promise. You heard from me. I taught you. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this promise goes all the way back to the prophets. I mean, this is something that Israel was waiting for. One of their own prophets, the prophet Joel, has said this, and it's a more extensive passage, but just uh, taking the first part of it here. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now listen, they didn't fully understand what that meant and who the Holy Spirit was, but then the day of Pentecost comes. We're going to look at that in in a couple of messages from now. And the Holy Spirit came and filled people in a miraculous way and continues to do so today. Israel was waiting for this, but it's so sad that mostly they just missed it. Joel goes on to describe in that passage miracles as well as things that are as yet unfulfilled for us, but the pouring out of the Spirit that Joel saw was was fulfilled on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And with the departure of Jesus, we just need to know we're not left alone at all because the Holy Spirit came. And at the moment of our salvation, at the moment that we repent of our sins and Jesus Christ comes into our lives, every single believer, listen now, every believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit at the point, at the the moment of salvation. 
And we are cleansed of our sin and made one with Christ forever. And when you become overwhelmed with life, let alone the mission, you just say, I can't even think about the mission right now. You have no idea what's going on in my life. Whatever it is, we've been given this promise that though we cannot see Jesus with our own eyes, He is here in the presence of the Holy Spirit, not just in a general sense in the world like the Holy Spirit is here in the room, in a very specific sense where He indwells me. He indwells me. He indwells you if you are truly a follower of Christ. You have the promise. You have the indwelling, empowering Holy Spirit of God. And this promise relates specifically to, to what we see in the next two imperatives. And so if you have the Spirit and you are a possessor of the Spirit of God, if you're a true believer, if you have the, if you have the Spirit, then receive the power that the Holy Spirit has for you. That's the third imperative. And these 11 apostles, as all of this is unfolding... Just an incredible period of time, the three years, let alone what had just happened in the last month and a half. And so these 11 apostles have a ton of questions. Just, I would have a ton of questions if I were there. I'd be asking all kinds of things because all of it would seem so confusing and and what's going to happen next. And so verse six, they ask this question. So many incredible things have just happened. And, And they ask this question. So when they had come together... Under the command of Christ, you know, don't leave Jerusalem, stay together. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? We thought it was before, but then we get that some other things had to happen. But now, how about now? Is this the moment? And so they still have some misconceptions about the nature of the kingdom. They're they're still not yet super clear about the mission. It's all going to get cleared up in just a moment. When Jesus answers their question, verse 7, Jesus said to them, It's just not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. I feel like we still need to say that today to people. Not yet. It's not yet. It's not yet. In other words, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I've got some things for you to do, but that particular question, none of your business. Just Jesus saying to them, none of your business. You don't need to be concerning yourself with with all of that, I, um, about a year ago, um, I found this um, Polish proverb. I really like it. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Come on, it's funnier than that. It's a great. <laughs> not my circus, not my monkeys. So whenever someone starts to talk to you about a problem that is not your problem, something you should not be engaged in, something that you do not have the bandwidth for, you just simply say to them, okay, if you were Anglicans, you would have done that way better because they're really good at congregational stuff. Let's say it again. Not my Correct. This is such a safety valve, okay? It just releases all the pressure on stuff that you don't have to be concerned with. And in essence, what Jesus is saying to the disciples when they ask this question about the end times, he's just saying that that's not your circus. Those aren't your monkeys, okay? That's God's circus. That's the Father's circus. That's his monkeys. He's going to decide when I'm coming back and when the kingdom is going to be fulfilled. 
I need to forget about the things that are not my concern and concern myself with the things that are my responsibility, which Jesus is getting to. Jesus is saying that there's no sense twisting in the wind about the end times and when that's all going to happen. And, and listen, it's been about 2,000 years for us now. And evidently, it's still not time for God to restore the kingdom to Israel. It's still not time for the culmination of history, for God to complete his plan and to bring a final end to sin and death and usher in eternity. It's not yet time for that, evidently. And we do have some concerns and responsibilities that we should be thinking about. We do have a circus and we do have monkeys. And we need to concern ourselves with those ones. And so he says this, this is the key verse in in all of the book of Acts. This is it, underlined, highlighted in your Bible or your e-Bible, verse eight. But, but, great question, not your concern, but in the meantime, while you're waiting for that to happen and God to bring that about, okay, while you're waiting for that, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now that word power, let's define that. This comes from one of the lexicons. The power is the potentiality, the potentiality to exert force in performing some function. Remember that word function. Okay, the, the potentiality to exert force to perform some function. Another lexicon says that it is just a bunch of synonyms here. It is might, it is strength, it is force, but then mostly it is this, it's capability. The kind of power we're talking about is capability, the ability to accomplish a very specific thing. The function, the something that we're to do is to be witnesses, to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when the supernatural implications of this are considered, we see that the power comes to the apostles and to all believers to fulfill this mission as sent ones. In fact, we cannot hope to do anything of consequence in this church. We can't hope to do anything impactful for the gospel mission without the Holy Spirit giving us the capability to do it, the power to get it done. And that's why Jesus said to wait for it. And you and I cannot do without it. If anything good is to come of what we're doing here, it must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? It must be his capability working through us. Now, here's the second aspect of the promise and the fourth imperative. If we're to fulfill the mission and be witnesses of Jesus Christ of the world, we must follow the plan. Now, this is the latter part of verse 8 now. Pick it up halfway through. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You, you, help me read it. You will, you will be my witnesses. Not you, not you might be my witnesses, not you, you could be my witnesses, not you should be, as if it's some kind of like wishful thinking, I hope this really happens, but there is a, there, 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 we're being pressed here, again, with something that's coming with the force of an imperative, you're going to be, this is going to happen, you will be my witnesses. And if you're truly saved by Jesus, then you will have concern. Listen to what I'm saying. If you are truly saved by Jesus, you will have concern for all the people in your life who do not yet have Jesus Christ and have not yet had the forgiveness of their sins because you will know the peril that they're in. Do you have that? 
Are you his witnesses? They have no hope in the world. And we possess the words of life. We are witnesses to the resurrection. The very thing that can save them. So we have to be his witnesses. We have to do what it takes to complete the mission. His plan is for us to be his witnesses. And when you look at that word a little more closely, it's exactly what you think it is. It's a legal term. It's a courtroom term. You've seen something. You see it happening in your life. You have the testimony of the scriptures. You have the evidence in your hands. And you have been subpoenaed by God to come and testify to the things that you have seen. To come to the courtroom and give your story. Where? Where's the courtroom? Where am I supposed to to, to give my witness and, and share my testimony? And Jesus tells us, he continues on, this is the plan. In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, by the way, before we go any further in this, this is the table of contents for the book of Acts. This is the, the layout for Luke's plan for sharing what he's going to share and all the stories he's going to tell. Uh, chapters 1 to 7, in fact, I think we have this up here. Uh, chapters 1 to 7 is primarily focused on what's happening in Jerusalem. And then chapters uh, 8... Uh, through 12, Samaria and the surrounding regions, including Judea. And then chapters 13 through 28 is, is the Mediterranean. Paul gets on a boat. Paul crosses over into Europe. He goes all the way to Rome. There's indications he went as far as Spain. They were going to the end of the earth. And so Acts 1.8 is the table of contents, the outline for the book. That's, and, and when we think about this plan now, this threefold strategy for being witnesses, the courtrooms that we're going to testify in, the macro plan for the world is that it started in Jerusalem, it went to the surrounding areas, and then it went everywhere else in the world to the very end of the earth. But then we need to think about that situation here in, the, in more the micro sense. And we need to think about it in terms of this local church and what's our Jerusalem and what's our surrounding regions and what's the end of the earth to us. And you and I need to think about it more personally. What's my Jerusalem? Who are the people that are kind of surrounding my life? And and where are the people who are kind of further out there that I need to be thinking about reaching? And so here's the Acts 1-8 strategy. You can jot this down. First of all, the principle for Jerusalem is, is this, start close. Start close. Start with where you are. Start with your own family. Start with your own friend group. Start with the people that you work with every day and you're spending 40, 50 hours a week with. As far as this church goes, our Jerusalem is the city of Barry. It's the county of Simcoe. It's the places where people can come right in and be part of this. They're within reach. It's our local area. We start close. But the Acts 1-8 strategy continues. We have to reach beyond We have to reach across the street. It's amazing how little we know about our neighbors anymore. When I was growing up, I knew everything about the people around my my house. We knew our neighbors. We were in each other's houses all the time. And it's just not like that anymore. Who are your neighbors? Who are the people who are across the hall from you in the apartment building or across the street or even right next door? You might not even know who they are. Reach beyond the immediate area. 
For Barry, it's the next town or city. Or, or this is for sure the principle when we think about Samaria. Samaria was this region within Israel, but they were uh, the result of the northern kingdom being broken up and, and people intermarrying with the pagan people. So the Samaritans were half-breed Jewish people that the Jews absolutely hated because they weren't pure. Now you start thinking about that in terms of this reach beyond Think about reaching people who are not like you. Think about people who are another ethnic group, another language, another religious community, any other people group of some kind. Think about people who are, you know, if you have some wealth, think about people who are poor or homeless. Think about LGBTQ people. People are not like you. Think about people, because this is the exact principle of the Samaritans. Think about people who are very hard for you to like or love. You have to understand that when, when Jesus said, go to Samaria, actually, when he went to Samaria himself, it, it was like every fiber of every Jewish person was like, what the heck? That's the mission we've been, we've been given. Start close, reach beyond, go far, cross oceans and borders until the whole world has heard the testimony of Jesus Christ. And each of us needs to ask what our part is in all of that. And you might say, I, I feel like I can't make much of a difference, that my gifts or my influence are so insignificant with respect to this mission. And you would be very wrong. Uh, just um, that way and across uh, the, the business lot that's beside us off the south parking lot and into the wooded area. There's a pond back there and there's a creek called Diamonds Creek. It's one of, I think, five or six creeks that flows into Kempenfeld Bay. Most of them you don't notice, though the city's done a great job of opening some of them up to make them more obvious. Diamonds Creek starts just a little bit that way, just close to the 400, and then uh, trickles in behind the building here. And some of it is above ground and some of it's below ground, and eventually it empties into Kempenfeld. It's a very insignificant creek. There's not, it's not developed really anywhere. You can't walk along it and join it. A lot of the year, it's just a little trickle. It, there's not really much there at all. No one ever goes back there except the homeless. And um, the city, again, hasn't made a big deal of it. It's very, very insignificant. Except for this fact. Diamond Creek empties into Kempenfeld Bay, which is part of Lake Simcoe. The water flows north through the Narrows into Kuchiching. From there, it flows along the Severn River and into Georgian Bay. From Georgian Bay, it flows into Lake Huron. From there, Lake St. Clair, the Detroit River, and into Lake Erie. From there, down the Niagara River and into Lake Ontario. And from there, the St. Lawrence and out into the mighty Atlantic Ocean. A very insignificant little creek is part of a greater watershed and empties out into the ocean. And, and I read this, I've been reading um, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, uh, lately, and from my time with the Lord in the morning, and he wrote this, a river reaches places which its source never knows. Diamond Creek doesn't know it's flowing into the Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't know. A river reaches places which its source never knows. And Jesus said that if we have received his fullness, in other words, if we have the Holy Spirit power in us, if we've received his fullness, rivers of living water will flow out from us, reaching in blessing even to the end of the earth. 
regardless of how small the visible effects of our lives may appear to be, you might just be a little insignificant creek in an industrial area. But you're part of something that's flowing into the vast ocean of God's plan. Just follow, just follow that plan. Here's the final imperative. Feel the push. As Jesus is ascending, this is a great account here in verses 9 through 11, the apostles, the sent ones, were gazing into heaven as he went. How many people would have been doing exactly the same thing? Just looking up. I mean, he just lifted up into the clouds. We'd all be staring. Every single one of us would be staring up into the clouds. And then two men show up wearing white robes. Okay, the, that's the uniform of angels. Okay, the two angels show up and they say to them, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you just stand there gazing up into heaven? You see, Christianity is not a passive religion meant to be just for me and us. It's not just about getting together here on Sunday mornings. And this was so awesome. The music was so great. And we got to see our friends. We had a good cup of coffee. We're serving really good homestead muffins today. It was such a comfortable, nice, pleasant, awesome little experience to be the church. That's not the point. Not even close. Christianity is is not a passive religion meant to be just for me and us. By its nature, it must be shared with others. And so much is at stake. And we can't just sit here loving Jesus, basking in the glow of each other's company. In fact, it is our worship of Christ that becomes the compelling motivation for our mission for Christ. Our worship compels mission. We love Jesus so much, who he is and what he's done for us, that we can't contain it. And the angels are literally saying to them as they're gazing up into heaven, basking in the moment, get to it, guys. He just told you what to do. We need to feel the same push. There's no room for complacency, no room for comfort. What the angels said to the apostles, to the sent ones, applies to the sent ones of the 21st century. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he's going to come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. It's been 2,000 years. I got to believe that it's, it's coming soon. The world we live in is broken. This world is a mess. Not going anywhere near speculating about when he's coming, but the signs seem to be pointing to his coming. The world politically is a disaster. Our economies are so tied together. And we have created such a tangled web of economies that the whole thing could collapse and no one really ever feels like they have control of it. And I know most Christians aren't so much into the environment. But listen, we're using up this earth. And there isn't much left. The needle's almost at empty. The signs are pointing to it. So let's take this gospel to those who are close. And those who are beyond. And those who are far. Because the job isn't done. And so many have not yet heard. Feel 
to push. And so here we are at the start of a new ministry year. And I hope you are feeling the push. And every single one of us is going to feel that push a little bit differently, depending on where we're already at for the Lord. We need to imagine we're on the hillside with the apostles and that we're hearing the words of those angels who are saying to those messengers of God who are saying to them, why are you just standing here? Why are you just sitting here, church? So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe the push for you is to finally give your life to Christ. Maybe you've been hanging around here for months or for years and the time is to feel the push now. Maybe you're using every excuse in the book not to be baptized. Whatever excuse you have, imagine saying it to Jesus at the end of the age. And today, the push you need to feel is to be baptized. Maybe some of you are not giving or not giving as you ought to. What do you think funds the mission? You need to rethink your giving. Maybe some of you have making excuses not to be involved in small groups and be doing life with one another. Or maybe some of you have been in small groups for years and you know you have leadership abilities, but you haven't signed up. You haven't taken that step. You haven't felt the push to start leading a group yourself. Maybe some of you are sitting here week after week. You're not serving. You're not doing anything. You're not working for Christ in any way. Can you imagine standing before him? as a follower of Jesus Christ, knowing the clarity of the mission and using whatever excuse you have to not have a place of service. Wherever you're at, I haven't become a member. I have my reasons. Try them out on Jesus. The elders are asking you to be a member, to sign on the dotted line, to say you belong, to say you're for this, and to apply your life to this mission. Feel the push. Why are you just sitting there? If we're going to fulfill this, if we're going to do this mission, then every person in this room has to commit to this. If we're to fulfill the mission and be witnesses of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs him. We're going to sing this song again. Let's stand together. Come on, team. We're going to sing this song about the church and you sing it from a place of commitment. You re-up right now. You feel the push and you re-up to being the witnesses of Jesus Christ in this world.